Hello and welcome to this episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. Today, myself and Riki Hayashi are here to talk to you about Godzilla Minus One, the Japanese film that's currently in theaters that's taking the Godzilla franchise that we've talked about somewhat on this podcast already and really doing some new interesting things, going back to some of the original story beats, telling it in new ways, and... Uh, Riki and I have had some amazing conversations over the last year about Gojira, the Godzilla stories and character, but I haven't gotten a chance to get him on the podcast. So I'm really excited to have you on. And I wanted to say a quick note before we jump in that uh, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more of it, one of the best things to do is to become a member. Only $5 a month uh, or $55 a year. You get ad-free content. You get bonus content. So, for example, today, Riki and I, at the end of this, are going to talk about sort of the Godzilla franchise as a whole. Um, and also, we're going to start doing a book club pretty soon. Definitely for Star Wars, quite possibly for the superhero ethics as well, at least once a month. And those co- those episodes will be for members only. So, please seriously think about becoming a member. All the information is in the show notes. It's only $5 a month. Or, as I said, $55 a year. But with that... Uh, Riki, let's get started. And let me just ask you, uh, as someone who was born in Japan, grew up mostly in America, but with a Japanese family, what is the significance of the Gojira character and the Godzilla franchise of movies for you, even before you saw this one? Yeah, Matthew, first off, thank you so much for having me on to talk about this, because it, it is just an amazing movie, an amazing franchise. For me personally, I grew up watching these movies. And it's just, I mean, it's the most successful movie franchise to come out of Japan, Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, it holds the Guinness World Record for longest running movie franchise because it started in 1954. So it's longer than James Bond, which is probably the second longest, if I were to guess. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. And, you know, in terms of cultural exports from japan i think it's the most significant yeah you could make arguments for some anime stuff especially these days like dragon ball one piece uh attack on titan but from like a long-standing historical perspective like this is it and and, yeah. and personally like i love it i love kaiju you know monster movies and just growing up with them they were great campy fun movies to watch Mm -hmm. as a kid or as a young adult and same thing with the you know we talk like we do the star wars podcast and we talk about that and how it's affected our lives and now to see this franchise move in the direction that it's moving with the last two movies shin gojira and then this one minus one is Mm -hmm. truly amazing and heartwarming for me as a fan and it's great that i can continue to enjoy the franchise as an adult and have it resonate with with much more adult themes than just like yeah. a monster destroying cities. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to talk talk about from what you just said. First of all, just on the the cultural significance, you know, it's funny to think how much the the Godzilla name, uh, which is funny, which isn't as as, as you, you picked up, but just to kind of make clear the the word in Japanese is Gojira. Godzilla is what has been is the anglicization of it, but that's then become the word that's very well known in America and English speaking worlds. And that name, like we did an episode on the Star Wars, the Clone Wars episode called the Zilla Beast, which mm. is very clearly a Godzilla story. Um, 
you know, think about terms like bridezilla and groomzilla and like oh, yeah, yeah. the 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 zilla uh you know application to all sorts of different things is very common in our, co- in our community. That's all out of these movies. To so signify like a monster, the same way yeah, um, we add gates to the end of anything to, for like a political controversy. Exactly, exactly. And it's 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 a monster, but it's also anything that's kind of like just oversized and scary, you yeah. know, and, and that kind of thing. The Bridezilla one has an awful lot of misogyny in it, to be clear, and I'm a very proud groomzilla, but that's a whole other story. Um, but also what you said, it, it's funny to me because I'm sure there's some stuff that's in the middle, but I feel like there's kind of two distinctly different sets of Gojira movies that are out there. And the one that is most often known, I think, by a lot of people, and there's a funny story about Kevin Smith that I'll tell with this, is the the guy in a rubber suit smashing buildings. And a lot of those are a lot of fun. Some of them have some real plot and some real, like, interesting commentary on, you know, indigenous populations in uh, the South Pacific or on nuclear war or a lot of these things. But a lot of them, it's just a lot of fun watching these rubber monsters smash each other. And in at least one set, uh, setting, uh, I believe it's Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, the name of which I forget at the moment. But you get to see Godzilla look very like passive aggressive and condescending at the silly military as he has to go after the Smog Monster because they can't do it. Um, really fun, really silly. To the point, I think those are dominant to the point where Kevin Smith on a recent podcast talked about how he doesn't want the human story in these movies. He just wants to see the monsters fighting. And and I, I bring that up because he has now recanted that and said after this particular movie, he's like, oh, okay, now I get it. <laughs> and it's funny because the uh, – and we, we did a podcast about this that Ricky was not able to be a part of, but Paul and I did, about the original Godzilla movie – uh, that the Gojira that came out in 1954, very significantly the first year after the American occupation ended, and it's really this heartrending story of and metaphor of Japan coming to terms with the nuclear horror that they that they went through and and the war and and America and all that, and it's this searing piece of social commentary wrapped up in a monster movie, which if you also look at things like invasions of the body snatchers and stuff like that. Horror and monster movies were often in the 50s, the the place you could get away with that and get around government censorship and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I love that, like, yeah, the rubber monster movies are fun. But with this and with Shin Godzilla, it, it really feels like it's a return to that older tradition of, yeah, the monster fights are fun and the monster in this movie is great. But let's really use this to dig into some some difficult ethical and, and moral and questions about war and monsters and violence and, and nuclear power. Yeah, to be clear, I mean, this minus one is very political, right? Like, the the message is pretty clear. But for any fans out there who are like, you know, why why do they have to make Godzilla political the same way they do with other franchises? That's silly. It's always been political. The commentary has been written into the franchise since the very beginning, as you said, regarding... Uh, the horrors of uh, nuclear weapons. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you talked about this on the podcast. I apologize. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. But it's not just the atomic bombings. It was very directly influenced by uh, an an atomic bomb test that the United States did in the Pacific that Mm -hmm. the fallout affected a ship. 
Uh, yep. It was called like the Lucky Dragon Number no. Five. I can't remember the Japanese name for the ship, but yeah, yeah. You, you you talked about that ship. Yeah, and how in the I mean, just to be very clear, that the name of that ship is the name of the ship that is the first damaged yeah. in the movie itself. Like they were not pulling any punches, and it's the test at Bikini Atoll yeah, yeah. that they're talking about, which is also the test mentioned in this movie. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the the monster, the smog monster is Hedera, Godzilla versus Hedera. That's uh, right. Very clearly a 1980s uh, message about the dangers of pollution. Yep. Uh, air pollution and kind of like the sludge pollution that was that was becoming an issue. There yep. have been Godzilla movies where the monster, Godzilla itself, is said to be the spirit, kind of like the vengeful spirit of... Um, Japanese soldiers who were abandoned mm. in the Pacific, yep. and I believe maybe soldiers and like civilians who were who were affected by the war, by the Japanese uh, Imperial War. So it's always been political. It, it's, yeah, it 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 is just a fun. You know, you can watch it, watch them as fun monster movies, but the directors have always tried, in my opinion, to maybe not hide, but layer these messages in. Uh, <clears throat> Shin Godzilla, the previous movie to this one, had a very clear political message about bureaucracy. And it was a it was a criticism of the Japanese government's response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And it just right. depicts the the government in a very incompetent, bumbling way. Yeah. And and I think this one is very similar in that <clears throat> and it's interesting. It's why I'm so excited that you're on this uh, podcast. And again, to be very clear, not – you know, we don't have you on here to be the voice of all Japan and the voice of all Japanese perspectives by any means. But I think you know more about this than I do certainly. But I think in watching this movie and, – and we will – for those of you who haven't seen it yet, we'll give you a quick plot summary, I promise. But like on the surface level, I could say, oh, this is Gojira meets Survivor's Guilt. You know, and because there's a very clear theme that I think anyone could understand of this is about survivor's guilt and and mm -hmm. the post-war period and all of that. And is a beautiful depiction of PTSD and, and how all of that would play out, yes. both with an individual character's survivor's guilt, but also with the whole nation coming to terms with this horrible war that had just happened. But also I know that, you know, in, in doing more reading and the like, that there's also a lot of specific commentary both historical about, you know, the American occupation that was happening at the time and, and the Japanese government under the American occupation, but also that, you know, because in the, in the movie, the government doesn't really do anything except cover, try to cover this up and try to like not let people panic. And a lot of the Japanese commentary I've read has said that this is also, you know, again, you can look at it as a historical piece, but the same way Shin, Shin Godzilla is about the nuclear power plant. This is a lot about COVID as well and sort of what the Japanese government did in response to COVID and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure like any – you know, in a world where Ronald Reagan can think that Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born in the USA is on his side, I, I'm sure that this is one of these things that like any political movement can twist enough to say it's supporting their political cause. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it's really interesting to dive into. Let me give a quick political sum, uh, quick plot summary, and then let's dive into some of the stuff we're talking about here. Let's go. So uh, the movie opens with a young pilot landing on Odo Island, uh, where there's a small airfield. 
Um, and a lot of this movie is clearly making reference to the original. Odo Island is the first place that the uh, uh, Gojira attacks in the original 1954. We learn that he was a kamikaze pilot, that they're actually uh, – he landed here, he claims, because there's something wrong with his plane. Uh, but that actually there wasn't, that he just didn't want to die. And he didn't want to uh, go and be a kamikaze. And – on the island, he's met with kind of, you know, some folks are, are judgmental of him, but there's also a sense of like, look, we all know the war is over. There's no, you know, what is the point of you being one more person to die and, and sinking one more American ship when the war is basically over? Um, and he's with these mechanics. And while he's there, um, the, uh, the Gojira monster, a much smaller version of it, but does attack. And he is ordered by the mechanics to get into his zero fighter and shoot the monster with the 20 millimeter machine gun that the monster has. And at this point, the monster is supposed to be, the idea I think is that it's small enough that the machine gun may well have made a difference. Granted, the plane is on the ground and in most of the shots, it's pointing at its like ankles. So I don't really know how much it would have done, but like its head bends down a couple times. But once again, he's paralyzed by fear. He's not able to take action. And as a result, almost all of the mechanics die except for him. Um, and I, I had all these names written down, and now the way I have my computer set up, I can't see them. So yeah. please fill in the names. I, yeah, I've got uh, – uh, so the the pilot is Shikishima Koichi. Shiki, yep. Um, the one engineer who survives is Tachibana. Tachibana, yep. And he makes very – in the next morning, Tachibana makes very clear that he kind of thinks that, you know, uh, Shinasaki – I'm sorry, say that first one again. Shinsa Shikishima. Shikishima, thank you. That Shikishima was a coward once again, and that all the people are dead because of him. And in a very kind of powerful, but again, not overdone the way it often could have been, gives him this little folder with all the pictures of the mechanics who died and their, and their families family, yeah. as just kind of like, you have to bear this guilt. Uh, Shikishima goes home to a utterly devastated Tokyo um, and I, I really like that it's Tokyo here. It's not Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It, it's a reminder that, like, as horrific as those nuclear bombings were, the firebombing of Tokyo actually killed more people and did even more destruction, as, as hard as it is to imagine that. And the Tokyo, I mean, there's just rubble everywhere. People are living in the rubble. Everyone is dead. And he meets a woman, uh, one of his neighbors, who is at first very happy to see that he's home, but then also realizes he's a kamikaze. He's not supposed to be here. And accuses him again of cowardice and basically says, like, if it weren't for men like you, my children will still be alive, which is oh, – gosh, yeah. For anyone who historically knows the war, there's no truth to it. But you understand just the the, the harrowingness of it and that looking for someone to blame. And, and um, there's a lot there about the sort of kamikaze culture, which I, we're definitely going to discuss and, and its place in, in the society. Um, and so then um, – he winds up taking in this young woman, Noriko, uh, who has a baby, Akiko. Uh, again, I think if mm -hmm. I'm getting the names wrong, please let yeah, me know. Yeah. Um, and they kind of become a family. And he never sort of crosses the line into romance with uh, Noriko, although it's clear that it's open to him, in part because he is still carrying all of this survivor's guilt and this feeling like he shouldn't still be alive and that all these people are dead because of him. And, and we get over the next couple of years in a quick couple of quick scenes, like pictures of the nation slowly rebuilding and the the neighborhood kind of slowly cleans up, but there's still a lot of refuse. We're given reference to the American occupation, but there it's never seen. Uh, we never see American soldiers on street corners, even though that would have been very common. 
Um, and I think that's a very pointed choice by the movie makers that we'll get into in a second. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Gojiro monster begins attacking again. There's discussions about how to kill it. Um, he winds up being out on a boat uh, trying to like get rid of all the mines, uh, which is another kind – like if you think about today – one of the biggest sort of justice issues is all of the mines that have been left behind in Korea, in Southeast Asia, in parts of Central America. And here we're seeing again, like all these mines were left and the Japanese, you know, want to be able to fish, want to be able to have shipping, but all the mines have to be taken care of. It's very dangerous. And he assembles this great group of people, the sort of crusty old captain, the the doctor, things like that. Um, we get a couple of other great scenes of Gojira attacking and trying to figure out how to how to deal with it. And the American occupation says they're not going to get involved at all. Douglas MacArthur says that he's not going to do anything. It's in 1947 when the Cold War is really just kicking off and the Americans claim they're too busy with the Soviets. The Japanese government also seems to say that it can't do anything. And so a group of civilians have to come together to try and fight Gojira on their own. Uh, they come up with a great scientific way to defeat it. They're going to surround it with Freon and make it drop to the bottom of the ocean and then rise it back up with the hope that compression and the decompression will kill it. But uh, Shikishira isn't sure that this will happen. He winds up reaching out to that um, mechanic again to say, hey, look, I need your help. And the way he convinces the mechanic to help him is by saying, I will finally be the kamikaze that I was supposed to be. That he's going to load up his plane with bombs, as, as would have been done. That was the whole idea with the, the kamikaze planes. And fly it into the open mouth of Gojira in the hope that that's what will destroy the monster. Because so many other things haven't. And it's a really beautiful scene. And and it left me, at least, really not knowing what I wanted to happen or what would happen. I mean, I think the film does a very good job of kind of leaving you in suspense about where you're supposed to be feeling this. Because... On the one hand, there's the feeling of he is doing what he was originally ordered to do and what so many people have said he was wrong not to have done. On the other hand, at least for me, not having grown up in the culture of that, there is a whole sense of like, you know, I would much rather live nob- live humbly for a cause than die nobly for it. So there's just a, a natural reaction I have against the whole idea of the kamikaze attack. Um, but at the end, and again, big spoilers, we find out that um, – the, the mechanic, on his own volition, without being asked by Shikishira, who was ready to die, builds an ejector seat and sort of g- gives him the possibility of you don't have to be a kamikaze, you can live. And in this just beautiful moment of, of that kind of – first the mechanic gives him that permission and then in kind of a like, – everything works out ending. We had thought that Nokira was dead, Noriko was dead, but it turns out she's alive and and she kind of gives him a final absolution and asks him is your war finally over and and that's where i just started sobbing because it's a it's a beautiful beautiful moment and the movie ends with with gojira dead and uh everyone living happily ever after and then of course the last scene that somewhere under the bottom of the ocean gojira is healing uh so we can have more of these movies that's i think i got most of the plot there's any big things i missed Plot-wise, no, I think you covered it well. I just want to mention the, some of the additional characters. Um, mm-hmm. Kenji Noda is the former Navy naval technician who's like the scientist uh-huh. character with the crazy hair who comes up with the idea. Uh, the captain of the mine-sweeping boat is uh, Akitsu Yoji, although most of the characters just refer to him as captain. 
I had to I had yep. to look up his character name. But he he's a fun character, probably my one of my favorites in the I mean yep. they're all amazing characters. There's also a young crewman on the minesweeping boat, Mizushima, who represents like the next generation for Japan. And specifically, mm-hmm. like they call out that he was too young to fight in the war. And there's a lot of great characterization around that about his motivations. Yeah. Um, I just want to say on that, because I think it's kind of one of the central themes is it seems like a lot of this theme is about sort of moving on from the war. And yeah. how do you get past this idea that the most noble thing you can do is to die for the emperor and all that? And in a great scene, the doctor and the captain tell the younger man not to go with them. And they say, because, you know, uh, not having fought in a war is something to be proud of. Because he's saying, like, I need to fight in this war. I didn't get to fight in World War II. And they tell him, no, you should be proud that you didn't fight in a war, which feels like it's a real sea change in in the mentality. Yeah. Like this movie, I cried multiple times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was definitely one of the scenes. Um the scene the, with Shikishima and, you know, plot-wise not knowing if he's going to actually um, die or not. Mm-hmm. I I saw that coming. I think that, like, all the clues were there. I definitely wanted him to live. And the way they set up the scenes, especially when Tachibana says, like, one more thing. Like, they're, they're checking out the plane. He says, one more thing, and then it cuts away. And I think mm. they sh- they showed the back of the seat, the pilot seat, and there was like German on it. So it was very clear that that was not part of the original oh interesting. design I totally of, missed that. of the plane, and that yeah. he he had done he had made some special modification. So there were like there were clues there. It wasn't like hit you over the head because you you missed it obviously, <clears throat> but it it was very much uh, hinting at that direction. So. For me personally, it wasn't a surprise, but the, it, I think it was written well in a way that is like, you wanted this to happen, you wanted him to live, and they gave you some hints that it was possible, but you mm-hmm. still weren't sure because it was kind of, at the end, it's up to him, and it was his decision, yeah. and I think that's what made it so powerful. I would agree, and I think I think I definitely had a sense of maybe he's going to figure out how to jump out or something like that. Yeah. But having it be Tochi, uh, Tochigira, the the mechanic, the one who had been on him and who only did this because he was willing to die, saying like, no, you don't have to die. It, it's yeah. okay if you live through this. That hit me so hard because it really felt like it was not just him forgiving himself, but but the others, you know, the kind of representation of the culture that he thought he had failed, the military culture, um, giving him that absolution. Yes, Tachibana giving him permission, and then Akiko, the young, their daughter. I mean, this is a found family situation, right? Like, Noriko is not Akiko's biological mother. Right. But they come together as a family unit surviving Mm -hmm. in Tokyo. So um, then there are scenes where Akiko refers to Shikishima as daddy, right? So she sees them as her parents. So not just the permission from Tachibana to live, but the motivation of wanting to live to continue to be her father. Like th- those are all like very important parts of this his story and his character. And it was just it just came together in such a beautiful way. Yeah, um, I- I'll say the other thing too. Like um, 
when Gojira first makes landfall after being irradiated and becoming like super monstrous, mm-hmm. um, he he attacks Ginza, the Ginza district where Noriko is working, and that's where she appears to die, right? Um, pushing Shikishima aside into an alleyway and saving his life. And in that, I cried in that scene too because yeah, his acting was so real to me. Like he just like unleashes this primal cry slash yell to kind of mirror when Gojira uses the atomic slash heat breath mm-hmm. and also does like the the classic you know yell. Yeah, he also yells like when he thinks Noriko's dead and when he sees the devastation. It was just gut wrenching. I couldn't believe it. Like one yeah. one of the most amazing acting performances I've seen of just like raw emotion. Yeah, it's. I I'm very glad I saw this movie in subtitles. Something I often struggle with, and I I kind of medicated myself properly so that my ADHD would be under control. And I think that like you know I think dubbing can sometimes work, and dubbing's gotten a lot better. But getting to see this the original. I don't speak a word of the language, but the acting performances still came across so, so well. And in ways that were just, yeah. I thought he was amazing uh, so much. Of, and it's kind of funny, I mean, I, I'm not even getting to the politics of um, uh, Hollywood and the Oscars. But, you know, when Oppenheimer came out, I do think Oppenheimer is a phenomenally good movie. And it's not about what it, a lot of people seem to think it's about, that it's not just about the atomic bomb. It's much more about his life in specific. But a lot of people were talking about like how funny it was that like this is a movie about the atomic bomb that there's no Japanese characters in it whatsoever. And so the fact that now this and Oppenheimer are going to go up against each other in the Oscar season. I hope um, so. Yeah. Like I think – because I think it really deserves – I think, you know, uh, best acting performances don't have to be in English by any means. Yeah. Let me – Well, let me uh, quickly the, – the actor's name, Shikishima's actor's name is uh, Ryunosuke Kamiki. So just mm-hmm. want to shout out his name and then follow yep. up real quick. What I was saying about the Ginza attack scene, I actually like suspected that Noriko was still alive. So even that to me was not a surprise. Mm. Okay. Mostly because, I, you know, we talk like superhero ethics. We, we talk about the concept of fridging, right? Where yeah. that is when in a lot in a lot of comics from the 80s and 90s, female characters would die or like suffer some horrible injury or something Mm -hmm. in order to motivate the male superhero character to you know attack the villain or whatever and so when noriko appeared to die in the ginza attack i kind of had like i was sad i was devastated yeah but i had in the back of my mind i was like ah that's that you know that's kind of a bad fridging job yeah but the movie is so good and the hype around the movie was so strong that I was like, no, I don't believe it. I don't think yeah. they actually fridged her because that would make this a bad movie. So I, I kind of yeah. had faith like in, in the production. <laughs> like um, so yeah, it was like a weird, oh, yeah. like she actually survived. But did you notice? I didn't, but I read about this after. Because I wasn't watching her in that scene. I was I was bawling my eyes out. But mm-hmm. apparently, like, on the back of her neck, there's, like, some movement to suggest that 
she has been irradiated. Like, there's debate about this because the movie doesn't make it clear. That she's been irradiated and or been infused with Godzilla DNA. Oh. Did you see this? Because I, I did. I, I need to I watch it a second time. I did not at all. I was watching everything. Everything I was reading was all about yeah. like the 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 history and the, the Japanese culture and stuff like that. So, no, I didn't see any of that. But, so, like, they, they clearly are setting up a sequel. So, they're, they're like, like I said, there's debate in the fandom. It could just be radiation poisoning. But it was, uh-huh. like visually weird enough that some people believe that it's like Godzilla DNA infused her and that's why she survived. So okay. I, I don't know I what's see up. That. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? A uh, couple of the quick things I want to uh, point out uh, just in terms of the Ginza, again, this is very much, I feel like a reference to the original movie. It, yes, it's in yes. some ways it, it's a prequel because it's happening beforehand, but a lot of the exact same things happen. Um, and also the first thing I'd read said that the name minus one is supposed to be because it's like a prequel to Godzilla. Mm. That's not actually true. The director and writer have both gone on record of saying it's because um, if you think of like Japan rebuilding at being at like point zero, it's that after the war they were at minus one because the, the idea being that Japan wasn't even ready to start rebuilding yet because it was still wrestling with the ghosts of the war and the past and the survivor's guilt and all of that. Um, so I thought that was a really nice explanation of what the name is about. But the Ginza attack, Ginza is what's attacked in 1954, and there was a number of specific moments that happen exactly as they do. Godzilla picking up a train in its mouth mm-hmm. and sort of shaking it around, which is how um, uh, uh, Kamigo is first endangered. Um, and also there's a beautiful scene in the in the original movie of these reporters standing on the top of a building – telling the story to the listeners on the radio of what's happening as their own lives are becoming endangered and and they eventually all die when their building is attacked. And that pretty much that exact same scene happens in this, which I thought was just a – in the later movies, the press often becomes the enemy. It, it goes back and forth. The press is sometimes the enemy, but often there's like – there almost becomes a kind of a, a, a cast that you have to have the young military guy who's disillusioned. The girl who he is flirting with and who has some part to play, the old man scientist who's a little crazy but has some good ideas, and the reporter. And sometimes the woman is the plucky reporter and sometimes the guy is. And like, But those parts are always there. And so it was nice to see, again, that homage to the reporter characters. And, and just that – again, made me cry because they're just – they're scared out of their minds, but they're doing their job of trying to make sure everyone knows what's happening even as they're about to die. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, I want to start getting into some of the deeper meanings of this. And, and it, it's very interesting for me watching this as someone who it's clearly about, it is a part of a conversation that I haven't been part of. And so um, let me kind of just give a little bit of my background in terms of my understanding of kamikaze and this part of the culture and, and then kind of straight from you, because growing up, I think. You know, it was the 80s, and there was still an awful lot of racism about Japan. I mean, there still is, to be very clear. Um, but, you know, this was the time when Japanese industry was really threatening American industry, again, in the way it was posted. And so there's an awful lot of racism. And I learned about kamikaze and, and just Japanese soldiers and bonsai and all this as this sort of like – there was a strong degree of the noble savage, the Rousseau idea, as well as this idea of the kind of like – Western idolization of Eastern mysticism, you know, and that like the 
the Japanese old man on the mountain who would always give you great wisdom. Um, and that a part of it was this lack of, you know, it could be treated as the Japanese were so crazy because they were so willing to die for their cause, or it could be the, oh, look how awesome Japanese were. They were so fanatical. They were so dedicated. If only we had that in Westernness. And so much racism obviously tinged around all of this, but that was what I learned about Kamikaze, the, the, the whole idea of the Kamikaze, as well as that it was all taking place after the war was basically over and, and the whole thing was just an exercise in futility. A lot of this was also taught in the kind of American justification of the atomic bomb in that, you know, Japan would fight to the last man. And so we had to do this because or else millions of Japanese would die, millions of Americans would die in an invasion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and since then, I've learned to unpack a lot of that and understand it more as culture. But I'm curious for you, uh, obviously, I mean, you grew up, you know, many, many years after the war as I did. We're about the same generation. But what what did you learn in terms of like the these ideas of like the the willingness to die for the emperor and and the role of the kamikaze in the war and all this kind of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, in so far as it was an empire, you know, imperial Japan. Mm-hmm. The the notion of the emperor, you know, like a king, as right. your leader, and in Japanese culture, the emperor is considered divine, right? Like right. the divine right of kings. The literally, the emperor is considered to be a divine being. Whether you know today in modern Japan, like people actually believe that or not, it's still a part of that mythos and and cultural mm-hmm. impact and importance of the emperor. Like regardless of whether you actually believe in divinity. So the emperor, you know, continues to be important. And I, it, it's hard to get into the mindset of people from almost 80 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. But it's understandable, I guess, not in a way that I would believe in, but that if you have this culture that props up the emperor as a divine being and you know, that, that people would do anything to mm-hmm. save their country, to save their emperor. It, it's very sad and tragic. And I think that's the reckoning that this movie is trying to have with Japanese history. And, and a lot of people like are trying to have. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so like it goes to the, the divinity of the emperor and also the Bushido, you know, the samurai code Mm -hmm. samurai didn't exist anymore at the time but even today to this day like samurai is considered a very important you know historical and cultural thing in japan so even though like samurai as a class didn't exist you know like you know people carrying on swords or anything that ethos just like you know the i think the knights of camelot that's the comparison i make for western cultures is like people see that as like an ideal like we should aspire to be like the Knights of Camelot in terms of honor and like fighting for what we believe in type of thing. Samurai very much like occupy that space in Japan. And so like the Bushido culture, like placed a high value on honor and mm-hmm. even, even death in service of honor or, or the idea that if you acted dishonorably, you should die. Right. The right. Um, idea of seppuku ritual suicide was often that if a samurai acted dishonorably they 
then like agree to subject themselves to seppuku to kill themselves because of it and and you know for you and i i think we value life and and think that that's not the correct thing to do but and we we make our judgments we we judge people but i want to make it clear like it i think it's understandable how if you grow up in a culture like this with these traditions with these ideals of the samurai bushido way that young men could be convinced could be lied to in my opinion to Mm -hmm. do this and it's it's unfortunate that that happened and you're right like i think there is racism to the narrative of kamikaze so let me also like historically or just like factually in japan um it's actually not referred to as kamikaze interestingly Mm. um the technical term for the units the suicide units was shimpu tokubetsu koekitai sometimes and in this movie shortened to tokotai and the shimpu at the beginning if you change the pronunciation can be read as kamikaze the way you read the kanji and so I'm not sure, like, where and how, like, that term got exported, mm. imported, and changed to kamikaze, but it's in- interesting, and I kind of want to, like, look into that, because no my, one in Japan calls it that, to my knowledge. I, I studied this, like, 25, 30 years ago, and I remember there was something about how, like, in Japanese mythology that, you know, way back in the day, there had been, like, a fleet coming from China or Korea or whatever, to invade the Japanese yeah. islands and a great wind, a divine wind had come kind of like the the Protestant wind that's supposed to have destroyed the Spanish armada, that some great wind from the heavens came and destroyed this invading armada and that that was – that the kamikaze were supposed to be something like that. And so I don't know if that's connected to the name at a- all. Again, absolutely. this is something I read 25 no, no, years I- ago, but – Absolutely. Uh, kamikaze, like that, that refers to the two Mongol – two failed Mongol invasions mm. in the 1200s, I believe. 1100s, 1200s, I can't remember specifically yeah. the dates. But yeah, like there, there is definitely a historical mythological belief that the divine wind sunk Mongol fleets and prevented the invasion mm. in kind of that yeah. Genghis Kublai Khan era. Right. Um, and it's, it is definitely a reference to that. And like I said, the Shimpu part of the name of the unit... Uh, there, there's always two ways to read kanji in Japanese, the the onyomi and the kunyomi, and basically it's like the Japanese way to read it and the Chinese way to read it. So it's like the characters for kamikaze are there in the name, but to mm-hmm. my knowledge, that's not how it's called in Japan. So again, like I, yeah. it's weird. It's possible at some point historically someone from the u.s or something said hey like what is can you read this to me and someone just said oh it says kamikaze when actually the japanese reading of it is shimpu i mean when you try to think about like we used to think beijing was pronounced peking like peking and like mumbai was bombay like there's a long history of horrible mispronunciations and anglicizations of of words from this part of the world yeah i mean to this day these parts of the world i should say i'm I'm rather confused on why English speakers call the country Germany instead of Deutschland, right? Which is right. how they refer to themselves. And the same as Japan. We like we refer yeah. ourselves as Nippon. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, one other thing I think that is important there is 
I, I love what you said about Bushido, and I think it's important to understand this as a particularly Japanese story. But one thing I think is always funny, again, in the kind of racist retellings of the, the kamikaze or the like, is every culture that I think of, and especially most of the movies that we talk about, have stories of people who are willing to sacrifice their lives to as part of the fight for others. You yes. know, and this yeah, is yeah, everything yeah. from um, you know, Natasha Romanoff being willing to like, you know, um, you know, die to get the stone that's needed for the um the the affinity gauntlet to almost every war movie has someone who does this to I mean I, I don't want to say that this movie has the same message as The Last Jedi by any means. Oh no. But I I have to think about, you know, Finn wanting to wanting to literally be a kamikaze, fly his plane into the thing to destroy it, and Rose saving him with we don't fight, you know, we don't die to kill what we hate. We fight to support, we defend what we love. Absolutely. And I, I strongly thought of that connection while watching Minus One. Yeah. And I, you and I love The Last Jedi. Yeah. But I, I think that scene in The Last Jedi with Finn and Rose is kind of written a little futzy, in my opinion. I right. Kinda like, I kind of think he maybe should have done it. Like, it, it, it was weird. Like, I don't know if it was fully earned. And that's why I love Minus One, because I, yeah. I think, like, the, the parallel scene in this one, like, fully earns it. And, and it's just, yeah. like, written much better and is presented in a much better way. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I thought of that comparison to The Last Jedi, and I thought this movie just did that section of it much better. I think you're totally right. I think especially because the fact that it it's it happens twice with um our main character, Shin, Shin, Shiki Shinra. Ah. Shikashima, thank you so much. Um, you know, because I think like, yeah, it, the war is almost over. One more plane crashing into one more American ship. It, it, I have a ton of sympathy for someone being like, oh, no, my engine has trouble. I can't do this. But I think the movie says it. What in the next scene, though, the fact that like he's in his fighter plane, he knows that if he fires his guns, he's going to attract Gojira's attention and probably die. He doesn't, and so the other people fire their much less effective guns, and they all die. Um, I don't know by any means that him firing his gun would have stopped Gojira, but I think it's certainly – I think he would have thought that it's possible. And I do think that there's like – would I have absolutely probably done the same in his situation? I probably don't even get in the plane. I'm way too much of a coward. It's not that I'm holding him in judgment, but I feel like they're, they're sort of very able to be like, eh. No one's really in it, watching today going to make feel bad about what he does with not being a kamikaze, but not shooting then. Yeah, there is some real guilt to be had there. And so this interesting thing of the culture blames him all for not being a kamikaze when him and the mechanic are the only ones who know his real shame probably comes from what happened on that island. And I just thought it was such a beautiful way of, of like you said, of making it really earned because it, it, you really felt like his survivor's guilt was it was he was lied to. It was he was culturally programmed, but also this moment that happened where he probably did fail. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I have not seen this movie, but the director of Minus One, Takashi Yamazaki, who is a, a very acclaimed director in Japan, I believe mm -hmm. he's won like eight uh, Japanese Academy Awards. Yep. Um, and one of the movies he won um, the Best Director Award for is called The Eternal Zero from 2013. And it is a movie about uh, Kamikaze Tokotai pilot. And in that movie, I believe, if I re read the synopsis correctly, he does make the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But he, all, like, not like he, he does it 
you know, because of all the reasons, historical reasons we talked about. But there's also like a, a friendship, like he does it to save a friend or something like that. And and mm. um, I've I've read there there's been criticism of Yamazaki and this movie, um, you know, from Japanese critics that it's glorifying the Tokotai, mm-hmm. um, because I think culturally, like we have reached the point where it's like, yeah that they shouldn't have done that like the government and the military shouldn't have done that should not have asked young people to do that and it's it's very interesting because the the movie the eternal zero was apparently beloved by shinzo abe the former prime minister who was assassinated Mm -hmm. but also yoko ono who you know was john lennon's wife Mm -hmm. and who Who i met once fun story go on and you know (laughs) so those are two very different people when it comes to war when it comes to opinions of war yoko ono obviously is uh you know was very Mm anti-war and shinzo abe like i'm not gonna say he's pro-war like i don't want to say that of any politician but he has a very uh troubling history especially when it comes to uh, world war ii his grandfather was actually um prosecuted as a war criminal for right. for his um what he did as a i think a military governor in china and he uh kishi was his name he still even though he was prosecuted as a war criminal became prime minister of japan in the 50s which yeah. is a whole which is a whole thing but abe so like abe's personal history and his connection to that like familial connection he has always downplayed Japan's uh, history, like criminal mm. war, criminal history, because you know, like it, it's very yeah. personal to him. So, and I, I just want to jump in on that. That, like, as I understand it, a lot of that is today. Like the context of it today is like in the same way that you know the American right wing wants to really be like, no, we didn't, you know, Vietnam, like really downplay American criminal activity. Certainly like they never want to acknowledge the war crimes of the nuclear bombs, but also like, no, we were doing what was right in Central America and in Vietnam and, and, and thus see everything America does today is, you know, make America great. I think this is that we are seeing this kind of thing happen all over the world of nations wanting to kind of reclaim their national greatness and, and really, um, uh, you know, wash over all the the crimes that all these different nations have committed and the like, and so it just putting that in that larger context. Go on. Yeah, and so like for those for Ave and Ono, like two, in my opinion, like polar opposites when it comes to the subject of War Two. Both love the movie. Like that's you know we you said earlier that people can draw all kinds of lessons and inspirations you know mm-hmm. personally from movies like this. And draw different conclusions about what the message is. And I think that just shows like that previous movie of his, The Eternal Zero, directly about kamikaze pilots. And and yet like people drew very different ideas yeah. and lessons from it. And I think that he learned from that, from the controversy and from the criticism. Mm. And it and it seems much more clear in this movie. Yeah that he's he's drawing this line of like this was wrong period and i think this is why you and i having a conversation is so important because i you know i imagine most of our listeners are are more like me in terms of being you know a couple of steps away from 
those conversations internal to like Japanese politics and culture both then and today. But I, I think it's one of the interesting and possibly dangerous, but also really important parts of looking at a movie like this is this is a movie that I think has incredible resonance for people outside of Japan because, again, issues of survivor's guilt, of PTSD, of how do you come to terms with you know, post-tragedy and post-national tragedy and all this. But also it does have specific meaning in conversations that I'm not a part of. And like a movie that originally I thought I was going to do some coverage of but decided not to um, is a, another phenomenal movie that I strongly recommend people watch, RRR. It's a, a wonderful um, – it's not Bollywood, but it's what a lot of people think of it because it's actually – it's Tamil-made. So I believe it's often referred to as Tollywood. Uh, it's not even Tamil. It's another kind of subculture in that area. But it is this beautiful story of uh, people in India fighting against British occupation and it includes everything from like romance and swashbuckling to song and dance and like defeating the British at a dance-off instead of a, a sword fight at one point. And it's this incredible anti-colonial story. It's also, as I read a lot more commentary from uh, people either in the Indian subcontinent or, or of that you know diaspora around the world, apparently like it can be read as having a very strong pro-Hindi nationalism and very kind of like pro – like it has some very strong like religious iconography that often I think could be missed that apparently like – in an internal Indian politics conversation is making a very strong point that a lot of people really strongly objected to. And that's not a conversation I have any context for and decided not to cover and probably would not have done this movie without you or someone else who had at least more of that background in Japanese politics and Japanese understandings because it's, I think, a really interesting question in general about how do you approach a movie that both has a lot of universal significance and meaning but also is making a point in a larger conversation that you might not have any idea of. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of art, and mm -hmm. especially like movies, and this movie in particular, is that it can be multi-layered. And yeah. I, I appreciate that on a basic level, people are enjoying this movie a lot. As, yeah. as a kaiju movie, but as a human interest movie, a lot of the commentary I've said, I've read or, or watched, you know, YouTube videos is comparing this movie to the American made, you know, legendary MonsterVerse Godzilla movies mm -hmm. from the last decade or so and saying like, look, like this minus one was made on a budget of $15 million. That's one yeah. five compare it to, you know, Godzilla versus Kong that probably costs like 200 million. And like most of the people are saying minus one is a better movie. And, and, it's... and, and not just because the human story is better. The CGI, the monster looks phenomenal and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of like Jaws ish ish scene where mm -hmm. Godzilla is swimming behind the mind swimming boat. I believe that's all CGI. Right. But it looks, yeah. it looked as real as you can get. Like it looked yeah. like it was a, a suit mation or like a model being like chasing the boat and, and there's a direct allusion to jaws in that it, for any spoilers for a movie that's 50 years old 45 years 49 years old jaws is defeated because there's like an air canister in his teeth and and our hero ray schneider shoots oh, yeah. it and it explodes and they try to do the exact same thing with a mine but here it doesn't work oh yeah yeah De definitely well i mean i can't say definite but it felt like a, a reference or illusion you know, yeah. just just short of Shikishima literally saying, smile, you son of a bee. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is the line from Jaws. And they do kind of say, I don't, actually, funny, I hadn't even thought of it, but they do say at one point, we're going to need a bigger boat. Oh. They don't say it in those exact words. Oh my gosh, yeah, something, something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I just love stuff like that. <laughs> it's so good. But yeah, all of it is is just wonderfully done, and, and the human story of it is so good. And I think we've kind of mentioned it a lot, but since you kind of named it at the beginning, uh, you know, that in this one you think the point of it is a lot clearer. What do you see as the point of this movie? Uh, anti-war, <laughs> yep. for one. Anti-imperial war, like specific to Japanese history, like a deep criticism of the imperial government and military. Um, yeah. And often, like, definitely, like, criticism of the decision to use the kamikaze. Mm-hmm. It is a tactical weapon. Uh, you know, going back to that conversation, in a lot of media, as you've mentioned, it is shown as honorable to die for the, a cause, right? Right. To, to sacrifice yourself for victory. In superhero shows, in military drama, all of that, like it, it's shown as a honorable thing for a hero to do. And we, we often like those are our favorite moments where maybe like a secondary heroic character makes that sacrifice so that the the main heroes can win right right i think the criticism especially historically is that a government should not make that an intentional strategy yeah it should be an individual's decision in combat whether they want to do something like that to try to to help their cause but for the government to intentionally recruit young people and you know, in my opinion, brainwash them into wanting mm-hmm. to do this in the service of their country and emperor, I think is despicable. Um, it, it was despicable then, you know, the, the notion of suicide bombers that, that happened, mm-hmm. you know, like 9-11 and stuff like that's this despicable terrorism strategy. So whether it's terrorism or like actual military strategy in a war, I, I don't think like we should do that. And yeah. You know, we talk a lot of on um, you and I about um, how terrible war is, and at a to, at a certain point in combat, people do what they have to do, right? But you know, I, that's my opinion. Is that you know, criticism of Imperial Japan and of that specific strategy? I think is like the main thing I took away. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that was definitely what I saw, uh, as well as a lot of real tales about how do you re- how do you rebuild while holding on to ghosts of the past, you know? And that's both in terms of a nation, but also just this. I don't know. For, for me, as someone who's gone through a lot of tragedy and and trauma, some of my own making, and some of other things happening, and had large periods of life where I think like I wasn't I wasn't able to let go of that, and so I couldn't move on. This story of the man who can't let as they say it his war hasn't ended like the subtlety of the movie the fact that noriko like there's never a moment where noriko tries to kiss him and he pushes her away like it is all in in subtext but it's fairly clear and the other characters later name it that she is waiting for him to move their connection from kind of roommates and found family into a romantic one and and that they all understand that it's because he is he 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 doesn't believe he's worthy of it. He doesn't believe his war is over, and so that line at the end of 
um, you know, is your war finally over? And he just breaks down in tears holding her um, mm-hmm. with the very clear indication that they get married later uh, because his yeah. war is finally over is just – yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's very anti-war. It's very critical of that kind of kamikaze, like raising people with the idea that their lives only have meaning and service to the emperor. Like all of it is just – there's so there's so many layers to it, which is really fantastic. And the, the criticism of the government continues on post-war. Um, mm-hmm. The captain mentions several times, like he's, he's very anti-government and he mentions like – when uh, Gojira attacks, I think he says something like, well, they're just going to lie and cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the fact that it's not – because in the original, it is kind of a government effort that pulls everything together. Because mm-hmm. again – and again, I think it's it's – you know, that is, it, that is a movie being told literally by a Japan that's nine years away from the awful devastation of the war – and it's literally a year after the American occupation has ended. It's the first time they can talk about these things uh, in a in public settings like a movie. And so I think I, in a lot of ways, I think this is a very interesting remake of sort of what's Japan's view of the war nine years after and then now like se- now 70, 79 years after, you know, you get to see a lot more reflection for that reason. Yeah. And a very strong, like for me, like this movie minus one and Shin really like highlight not just a criticism of government of japanese government but a a bringing up like a celebration of civilian power mm-hmm. civilian like brain power and just like ordinary citizens coming together for each other yeah in a in a strong way because yeah like when they come up with the plan to defeat gojira they say, well, the government's not going to help us. So they basically cobble together volunteers of mm. ex-military uh, naval ship shipment, right? Yeah. They, like most, I think all of those people were like, they fought in the war, they survived. So they all have this collective like survivor's guilt. Yeah. And they say, well, if the government's not going to help us, if they're not going to do anything, we have to do it ourselves. And there was also that company that supplies the... Um, the flotation device mm-hmm. right very much like so that was like a, a civilian company yep. coming in and helping them and and those were not military those were just like civilian engineers who were saying we will right. also stay with the, the ex-soldiers and help you and risk our lives and then uh, noda the scientist gives this very uplifting speech about like our goal is zero casualties yeah, in this context. this is not about trying to die nobly, yeah. which is why they're so upset when they think that uh, Shimishira Shikishima, Shikishima is gonna uh, die because oh, that's absolutely. not what they want. Yeah, yeah. The captain like curses him out when he when he thinks yeah. that's what he's doing. And I think also again, it, it it's again just how powerful this message is in that meeting of all these like formal naval. Uh, you know, enlisted men and 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 so uh, sailors and and officers. The the captain of the destroyer who's leading this specifically says, "These are not orders. Yeah. You're asking for volunteers, and if you want to walk away, you can." And several and do, and there's several no do. no shame. Yeah, no one says why you know you're abandoning your your duty. And I think they, it's they such kind of, a change. I think they some of them like nod to them understanding like because yeah. one of them says like I have family like I have kids like I can't do this and they're like yes yeah. we understand 
Um, yeah, that was very powerful. And the um, the young man, right? Mizushima, I mentioned the young man who didn't fight in the war. He's part of the minesweeping crew, you know, fa- family. And they tell him he can't come on this mission. And he's like, why? You know, I didn't get to fight in the war. Like, I want to be involved in this. And, right. so, and they just flat out deny him. But then he shows up with all of the tugboats. So he still went out and he enlisted all these tugboats to come, you know, at the last second and very like Dunkirky again, like civilian power. I think it was the message yeah. civilians helping each other, citizens helping each other. He still got into the quote unquote fight, but in a non military way and got other yeah. civilians to join in the cause. And, and it's, you know, another comparison to star Wars rise of, of Skywalker at the very end, Lando Calrissian shows up with that huge fleet of just random ships from all across the galaxy coming to fight. Mm-hmm. And it's a very similar scene. And again, I think just done much better here than in Star Wars. Like, yep. I love Star Wars, but this is taking like scenes, similar scenes from Star Wars and just doing it better, in my yeah. opinion. Totally agree. Totally agree. And the last, this is the last thing I want to say, but then also give you space for the last things. And like I said, we'll have member content. We're going to talk about some of the other movies. Um, one of the things I was very struck by is as someone who is American, been American all my life. Um, let me start that again. As someone who was born and raised in a Western culture and with Western values and things like that, you know, I was really, and especially American ones, I was very early taught like the power of the individual, you know, that the individual is everything and all this. And, I think a lot of people, myself included, have really grown to be very critical of that and very critical of the, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing and the idea that, like, each man is a king and so you get to shoot in self-defense all the time and, you know, that that I take care of me and you take care of you and we'll all be okay. And that, that leaves very little room for communal responsibility and, and, and a sense of, like, you know, that there should be shame for people who, you know, billionaires and people who are hoarding money to the extent that it causes harm to everyone else. Like, that has no place in our culture. And I think that there is a very powerful counterculture message that's happening now of, like, let's let's push back against that and let's let's look with some honor and reverence and see what we can learn from cultures that do have much more of a communal perspective and a, a communal aspect. And to me, this movie is also very powerful because – and there's a conversation I've had when I was in seminary. There was a lot of Asian students there and we often talked about this, about how uh, you know American history is a real lesson of the danger of the cult of the individual – but that Jap- Japanese history and some other uh, Asian cultures' history and, and, and in other parts of the world as well can also be a danger of when it goes all the way the opposite of each individual life is meaningless in service to the state, in service to the emperor. And that's 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 Japanese, but it's also – that was a big part of fascism as well in Germany and Italy and Spain and places like that of you know the individual – because that's everything they say where they talk about how – you know. Ships were built with very little armor and fighter planes didn't have ejector seats and all this. And because it's that it was that idea of the best thing you can do with your life is to die nobly for the emperor, for for Japan itself. And it's just a nice reminder, I think, of that, like, there's a dialectic there between, like, are we too focused on the individual? Are we too focused on the the every individual is meaningless in service of the the leaders or the culture or the, com- the country? And, and that finding some middle ground there is what's most important. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree with all of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Let me collect my thoughts on it real quick. Yes, I think you mentioned COVID earlier, like mm-hmm. COVID response. And yeah. there, there are definitely hints of criticism of government COVID response in terms of like the whole cover up, the government is lying to you type of thing. And it's it's dangerous. Like you and I, like we don't want to get into just like straight up denialism or anti-vax mm-hmm. messages, obviously. Like that's definitely not where we are. But I think we can be critical of the way that many governments downplayed covid to Mm -hmm. obviously to the detriment of lives like death or like severe illness and you know like the whole masking issue covid like as of right now 20 january 2024 covid is still out there oh yeah still affecting lives people are suffering from it people are dying from it and the idea that it's over like the the message that is over i think mm. that governments put out in terms of like let's get the economy back on track etc i think is too far in one direction i think we should yeah. ac- acknowledge that it is here and still ask that people do you know bare minimums to protect yeah. themselves and to protect each other and that's where i think your thing about collective collectivism i guess mm-hmm. uh, in Asian culture, Japanese culture is something that I still admire and aspire to in that in Japan, if you go to Japan, especially in the winter, especially now with COVID, if you go on trains, I would say probably like 90% of the people are going to be wearing masks on trains, right? And and my understanding is that that predates COVID, at least when I when I was in grad school, I played poker in casinos all the time in California. And there was a large Asian population in, in those in those poker rooms, and you'd often see about like ten to fifteen percent of them wearing masks. And I remember asking yeah, someone yeah. about it. I said, "Yeah, the percentage it's culturally understood." Yeah, but but it, like I would, it would have never occurred to me. Oh, if I have the sniffles, I should wear a mask. Now right. it does, and I was an idiot that it shouldn't. But yeah. and especially like trains in Japan, like though they're packed, like literally yeah. people get packed in. Like there are train attendants whose job is to push people. Onto the train. It used to be. I don't know if it still is now with COVID. Might be a little bit more social distancing, but you still stand kind of shoulder to shoulder during rush hour. And so, like, especially under those circumstances, like, wearing a mask is is considered respectful, right, to your neighbors, to the people around you. And I think, yeah, like, that that could also be seen as a message of this movie is, is everyone fighting not just for the nation of japan because like again there's criticism of fighting the war for japan but fighting mm-hmm. for the people like the right. your neighbors other other people around you i think that's that's a very strong message in this movie yeah i can definitely see that i can definitely see that all right well any last things you want to say ricky i don't know Go see this movie. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. It's very, and I would even suggest like watch watch the nineteen fifty four and then watch this because it, it it's really a beautiful getting to see like what could happen if they have good because the nineteen fifty four one's incredible, but it's still a guy in a rubber suit and it looks pretty good for the time, but still ridiculous. Um, but also, just, a lot of things are very different, and I think it's really powerful. Yeah, I think what my my closing thought on this is like, please 
consider like if you're listening to this again like i said january 2024 it is still in theaters and in fact seems to be picking up some momentum in terms of like the theaters that are willing to screen it because of the strong word of mouth Mm -hmm. keep that going because a it's an amazing movie i think you'll enjoy it even if you're not a kaiju fan if you're even if you're not a fan of this franchise my wife sarah I don't know if she's seen any other Gojira movie in its entirety. She enjoyed it. She loved the human element. I, th- I think mm. she enjoyed the kaiju elements because those were well done, the, the special effects. But the important thing is, like, especially for like a U.S. audience or you know, mm-hmm. worldwide, but we, you and I live in the U.S., having a Japanese movie with subtitles in the original Japanese language showing in u.s theaters and having success is very important like yeah. from, from a culture standpoint it doesn't mean like we have to show every japanese movie but i think like this we acknowledge that this is a very good movie that i hope gets some consideration for an oscar or multiple oscars and yeah. deserves all the praise and deserves your love and your money you yeah know, that's that's a very cynical way of putting it but studios and movie theaters operate on making money and if we show that we are willing to come out for a movie like this and pay money then maybe we'll see more of them in the future i mean the, the good ones right totally agreed and, and i would just say just the one counterpoint to that is i do think that there as covid numbers rise there are some very legitimate concerns that a lot of folks have about going to see a movie in the theater yeah, yeah. um i know for me i intentionally chose it we went at like two in the afternoon when like the theater was almost empty but also, it will. Uh, what I'm reading is it will probably be on streaming services within a month or so, where you can pay like you know four dollars to rent it or fifteen dollars to to own it. Um, owning it online being a whole other thing, but, but you know what I mean. And so I would just say, you know, if if you're not interested in going to see it in the movie theater, which I think is a fair perspective for for COVID reasons and all, definitely look at you know try to spend some money on it in one of the streaming services or just when it gets out to DVD or Blu-ray or. VHS, if you're still a you know old fogey like myself, or whatever you can do, because <laughs> there are lots of things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, for me personally, representation in media in movies is is, is important. I, I mean, I I say that it's important for everyone. I hope. Yeah. And so, movies like Crazy Rich Asians, Shang Chi, and the Lesson, uh, Lesson, uh, Legend of the Ten Rings everything everywhere all at once like these have been culturally impactful and important movies to me to see and support as an asian american but specifically as a japanese person um Mm -hmm. this one godzilla minus one is like very deeply personal to me and and i hope that it resonates you know continues to resonate with audiences across around the world and that Toho sees this and recognizes recognizes yeah. this, the studio and makes more movies like this, right? Like this yeah. is such an exciting direction for this franchise to go and, and to make like just better movies. Like this was yeah. such a good movie and it's so refreshing as a fan of the, like, I, I'm a fan of the cheesy kaiju movies. Yeah. But, but this was amazing, and this is like a franchise changer, in my opinion. I, I thought Shin Gojira was a franchise changer. This is like even more so. It, yeah. I'm just stunned. 
I'm well, stunned so, that they made this. It's so good to hear. And a couple of things I'd say. One is, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it yet. I probably will wait for um, it to be out on, on streaming, but I may see it in the theaters. Uh, if monster movies aren't your thing, there's also what is quite likely going to be Miyazaki's last and but the most recent Studio Ghibli movie is also in theaters right now. Um, and I, I remember I was reading an article about these two and how it was kind of funny that like the two of the parts of Japanese culture that have most made it to America in terms of on-screen movies are the Gojiro movies and then the Miyazaki Studio Ghibli movies, which are aggressively, aggressively anti-war and very much kind of like much more wholesome uh, content, though with also a lot of darkness in them as well. Um, but also just on what you said about the representation point, uh, I think is so important because, yeah, these are stories that, like I said, like if you're listening to this and you grew up in America or anywhere else that, you know, Western, you probably did learn about kamikazes the same way I did, you know, and I know that some anime have dealt with it, but like, this is a really good opportunity to be part of a conversation that you would not necessarily be part of, which I think is one of the, like, representation isn't just for the people who are represented in that way. And... I'll use that to do a, as we wrap up, a quick transition that another, I love hearing you talk, uh, Riki, about how important this is to you as as a Japanese person, an American, Japanese American person, because for me, that's how I feel about the TV show Echo that just came out. And there already is uh, an Echo episode that I put up with Will Freeland that I think was last week's. There'll be another episode coming out pretty soon. Echo is, I think, a masterclass in intersectionality. Because I watched it as an amputee and saw myself represented as an amputee while also seeing it as a great story about a Native American person and a person about a deaf person, two communities I'm not a part of. And it really got me into a mindset of of thinking about what does it mean to be in one of these three communities and then getting to read the stuff that natives are saying and that deaf people are saying. And then, like, I, I've made some great friends where, like, a deaf person will talk about how much they see themselves represented. And I'll say, like, I hope it's okay to say, but I feel as an amputee the same way. And, the, and that, that person's like, yes, that's awesome. And just – and even putting aside all the representation, it's, a, it's, I think, one of the best Marvel shows we've seen. I think it's a reminder that although there are incredible acting performances in the MCU as a whole, Vincent D'Onofrio, I think, is just – had a had a so so good and this is returning his acting as kingpin to the very best it was in netflix um there's just so much to love about it but from the representation standpoint if you're curious about any of those three communities or all three or just how these can be dealt as part of a great story go check out echo and check out my podcast episode about it check out all the things that ricky and i've had to say uh we will finally 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 be finishing up with uh, Rebels pretty soon uh, over on the Star Wars Generations podcast. You can find all that podcast stuff on theethicalpanda.com or going to True Story. Let us know what you think. We'd love to know your thoughts on this movie and kaiju movies in general, um, you know, on uh, Gojira movies in general. All that information is in the show notes. Please think about becoming a member. We'll have bonus content for the members. You can find out more information about how to find Riki and the stuff Riki does in the show notes. And to anybody else, thank you so much for listening. We have spoken. I can't, I can't do it. The, 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 the Gojira roar is so iconic. Well, and, and Mary, my partner, was, was complaining that the one thing she missed in this is a very sort of iconic, almost kind of metallic screen that Gojira makes yeah. in the original that then gets repeated again and again, and they didn't use that, which yeah. probably for the best, but we missed it.